Okay, we're in Lesson 19, and before we start, we want to say hello to a, uh, our uh, dear uh, fellow church member over in Afghanistan. So let's say hello to Tim, folks. Hey, we love you, Tim, and we're glad you're hearing uh, this this morning with us. Okay, folks, so we're in Lesson 19. We're in Chapter 11, and we're looking at verses 1 through 19. We're going to look at the two witnesses and the seventh trumpet. So, let's look, first of all, the measuring of the temple. We see that in verses 1 through 2. And first of all, let me just stop for a moment. As we read this, we need to, uh, there's a question that needs to enter into our mind. As you think about Jerusalem right now, is there a temple there? Now, there is no temple there. So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we get into this passage today. We'll talk about that a little bit as we go on. Look with me, verse 1 and 2. This is John writing. He says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angels stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. Okay, the first thing I want you to see here, before I give you this point here, is um, when we talk about measuring the temple here, the issue is not the determination of the actual dimensions of the temple, but really the conveying of a truth. He wants to convey a truth here. There's going to be a temple there. And so he's not really interested. He's saying measure this temple. The other thing is, is when you measure something, it signifies ownership. So, for instance, for those of you who own some property, every once in a while, you maybe have to have that property what, folks? Survey, because when you survey the property, are you, are you really interested in how many feet are on the outside border of your property? No, you want, to, you want to survey it for what? To know what you own, okay? So to measure here means to signify ownership. And so here's what I want you to see. The measurement marks Israel represented by the temple as belonging to the God, to God. The measurement marks Israel represented by the temple as belonging to God. Now in verse 2, John is told not to measure something. Now here's what he's told not to measure. He's told not to measure outside of the temple, which, remember, was the court of the Gentiles. And he said, why? Because the Gentiles are going to tread it underfoot for 42 months. So this refers to the oppression of Jerusalem for three and a half years by the Antichrist. This refers to the oppression of Jerusalem for three and a half years by the Antichrist. Well, let's just stop for a moment. A lot of people, we, we kind of have to keep things in perspective here. We're, we're told certain things. Remember I told you prophecy tells us a picture, but it doesn't tell us the full picture. All right? So when we talk about, when we read this now, we read that there's going to be a temple. When we look at Jerusalem now, is there a temple now? No. Does all of Jerusalem belong to the Jews? No. Half of Jerusalem does. I believe it's East Jerusalem. West Jerusalem belongs to the Palestinians. So we see a picture here 
that all of Jerusalem is going to be under the oppression of the Antichrist for three and a half years. So, the problem is, I want you to see here, these things are yet to be fulfilled. So when you get people all freaked out about, oh, it's just going to happen soon, it's going to happen soon, things can happen overnight. But can I be honest with you? Building a temple doesn't happen overnight. Do you understand what I'm saying? Even if with the best technology, I mean, they're not going to do it overnight. And there's another problem. Something right now sitting on the Temple Mount. Anybody know what that is? It's called the what? The Dome of the Rock. Okay? The Dome of the Rock is sitting on the place where the temple is supposed to be. So do you understand what I'm saying? So you say, well, all that could take place during the tribulational period. Yes, but we would be seeing things moving towards that. And we are seeing things moving towards that. When you see the issues like, for instance, right now, do you understand the big settlement issue that's going on in Israel right now, if you watch the news. The big settlement issue is the expansion of the Jewish settlements into West Jerusalem. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you look at the news, it's talking about the Jews expanding into West Jerusalem because the Jews, the Israelis, claim Jerusalem as their what? Their capital. All right. So what you're seeing is, is you see all this stuff moving to it, and so what's happening is, is during the tribulational time, for three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to basically rule over Jerusalem. Basically, the Gentiles are going to trample it underfoot, is what it's saying here. And there's a temple. So I don't know how all that mixes together. We just need to know that that's coming. Do you understand what I'm saying? All right? Now, let's go on. Look with me, verse 3 through 6. We're going to be introduced now to... Two witnesses. And a lot of time is spent in prophetic literature trying to figure out who the two folks are. Let me just go ahead and tell you, well, I'll wait till we get through it, and I'll tell you what, I, what my thoughts are here. Verses 3 through 6. Look with me. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Let me just stop for a moment. As we read this passage, you're probably thinking, wow, what kind of dudes are these? These are human beings. Now, the prophecy folks would like to figure out who they are. So there have been some speculations. I'll give you some theories right now. Some speculate that it's Moses and Elijah. How many of you have heard that? Some speculate that it is Elijah and Enoch. How many of you heard that? The reason why they speculate that it's Elijah and Enoch is because they're the only two people who have not died. They have been translated. You say, what's the translation? Well, that's where you leave this planet without dying. Rapture is a translation. You understand what I'm saying? A rapture is a translation. I particularly don't feel that they are any of these folks. Because those folks were raised up for their generation. I believe that these are two people who are going to be raised up, later on two men who are going to be raised up, 
to fulfill a purpose that's yet future. And it's not Moses coming back or Elijah coming back, but two men, but their roles are going to be similar. They're going to be able to do similar things because God raises up men like that for times yet to come. Do you understand? Human men. So, and to be honest with you, what am I trying to say? The Bible doesn't tell us who they are. We just know they're going to show up. Yeah, it wouldn't really matter, yes. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's What difference does it make who they are? We just know they're going to be here. And let's look at what it says about them. So first of all, the two witnesses are commissioned to proclaim God's word for three and a half years. So these guys are going to be around proclaiming God's word for three and a half years. So they're prophets. You understand, a prophet is somebody who proclaims God's word. All right? Now, here's their identity. John points out that they are a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And you'll notice in your book there's a, there's a reference there, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. Let me just read to you some portions of that real quick. And then we'll look and see what Revelation says. Chapter... Verse 1 of chapter 4 of Zechariah. And the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I'm looking and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it and a stand of seven lamps and seven pipes to the seven stands, to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Okay, let's skip down a little bit. Look at verse 11 there in Zechariah chapter 4. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further, I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that dip into the receptacles of the gold pipes from the golden oil drains? And he answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. So these are obviously somebody special. Do you understand? These are someone special, and it's a fulfillment of the prophecy. These two are going to be in the tribulation, and they're going to be proclaiming God's word for three and a half years, and it's a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Now, there's God's protection upon them. Those who wish to harm the two prophets will be killed. But bottom line, look at what it says there, verse 5. Anybody tries to harm these two dudes, fire comes out of heaven, fire comes out of them and consumes them. Now, we see this in First and Second Kings. Elijah is there. Someone is sent. It may be Elisha. I'm trying to remember which prophet right now. But there's armies that are sent to take him. And boom, fire comes out of heaven and consumes them. They send another host. Boom, fire comes out of heaven and consumes them. The third captain shows up. He's, he's probably walking past the charred remains of everybody else. And he begs for mercy. If you understand what I'm saying. God's protection is upon these two guys. Anyone who tries to harm them, they're going to be killed. 
Because they're, they're there for a purpose. God has sealed them for a purpose. Now, here's what they're saying. Verse 6 tells us, They will demonstrate power through great signs and supernatural... Excuse me. They will demonstrate power through great supernatural signs. Like a Moses and Elijah. This is why a lot of folks believe it's Moses and Elijah. Here's another reason why they believe it's Moses and Elijah. Remember when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who did he talk to, folks? Moses and Elijah. So it, it could be Moses and Elijah. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But the fact is, is they do things like Moses and Elijah. So, for instance, when they speak, the heavens shut up and there's no rain. Who did that? Elijah. They turn water into what? Blood. Who did that? Moses. And there are other plagues that come upon the world because of them when they pronounce judgment. Who did that? Moses. Did you understand what I'm saying? So the reality is, is that these guys will be able to, through God's empowerment, do great supernatural signs and wonders. But the passage goes on and tells us something else that is very interesting. Look with me at verses 7 through 10. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, for also our Lord, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, nations, will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another, because two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. First of all, all right, so we see that God protects them, but at some point that protection is going to be lifted. When their ministry is complete, the Antichrist will kill them. Let's just stop for a moment because you see the Antichrist, the Antichrist come out of the bottomless pit. Well, let me remind you of something. Who, the Antichrist is a human being. He's referred to in the book of Revelation as the beast, but who indwells him? Satan. So when you see this, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, that's really a reference to the Antichrist who is what? Devil possessed. Satan possessed. So he's going to kill these two. All right? Now, look at the location of their bodies. Their bodies will be left to exposure in Jerusalem. Look with me at verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Now, first of all, where was Jesus crucified, folks? Jerusalem. So it's telling us exactly what city. Now, it's spiritually called Sodom, so obviously it's not right with God, is what it's saying. The city is not right with God. All right? But it's called, it's where Jesus was crucified. Now, their bodies are going to be left to exposure there. Basically, they're not going to allow them to be buried. Now, why, why do you think that is? For three and a half days, they're going to leave their bodies rotting out in the... In the in the sun. 
Why do you think that is? I think it tells you in the passage. Because of what? Yeah, because of the great torment these guys did on the earth. I mean, people are going to be ecstatic and excited about it. In fact, that's the next point here. The world will see their bodies and celebrate their deaths. The world will see their bodies and celebrate their deaths. Now, let me just stop for a moment. I want you to think about this for a moment. You know, I'm, I'm 44, going to be 45. And I can, I can remember back 30 years ago, I can even remember back mid-70s. You know, the only news you got was like at 6 o'clock, Walter Cronkite. I forget who the other guys were. Dad watched Walter Cronkite. He didn't like Dan Rather. He liked Walter. So, well, anyhow, so I remember that was the only news you got. And the only, what came in the newspaper or what came over the radio. Today, when something happens overseas, it is immediately there. In fact, today, if something happened back then, it would be at least a day before you got it. And, and I remember reading about things that happened in World War II. It might be a month or two before you found out about a battle. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now things are instantaneous. And, and you're carrying those sophisticated cell phones now that give you automatic access to the Internet. In fact, now, I was just reading, one of the kids had a, like a National Geographic Kids magazine, and I, was, and I was reading it, just looking at something, something caught my eye, and it was a guy had a pair of glasses on that he could watch a DVD through a pair of glasses. And then I just read, like a few days later, that they're talking about you'll be able to watch TV programs. You'll be able to watch your Internet with your glasses. I mean, you talk about texting bothering you while you're driving. You know, you know what I'm saying? i got those glasses on. Who's going to know? You know? So, I mean, so you'll be able to, wherever you are, to watch them. It's going to be instantaneous. The world's going to see them. Now, you know, 30 years ago, if you said that, we would have thought, how's that going to happen? Maybe TV. But now it's become even what? More believable, isn't it? Now think about it. A hundred years ago, you wouldn't even wondered how in the world the world's going to see them. But now you know that it will take place. And the world will see their bodies and they'll celebrate their deaths. They'll just let them lay out. In their, I mean, they'll be glad that they're dead. They're gone. Now look with me, verse 11 and 12, but that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story, in fact. You talk about people being freaked out, this will freak you out. Look, look at what's happening here. Look at verse 11 and 12. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet. And look at this. It's almost, you almost expect this. And great fear fell on those who saw them. I mean, you got people who are dying, rotting in the street for three and a half days, and then they stand up. Wouldn't you be scared? And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies saw them. Their enemies. Okay, let's talk about this. First of all, great fear grips the world as the two witnesses come back to life. I mean, you, try, you ever see one of those, 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 
you know, if you've watched one of those action flicks and they got the super evil, you know, and they and they finally kill him and then he comes back and it's like everybody's freaked out because the, the bad guy came back, that's what the world's going to be thinking. It's going to be like one of a bad movie that they saw. That they finally kill these guys, they're celebrating, woo, he's, they're dead, they brought all this misery to us, and then all of a sudden, the breath of life comes back to them and they stand up. People see this, and, and of course they would be scared. And then they see them going, I mean, ascending to heaven. A voice saying to them, come up here! Wow. Okay? Wow. Now, here's what happens then. The two witnesses are called back to heaven. They're called back to heaven. Then, I want you to notice the resulting judgment on Jerusalem. Look with me at verse 13 through 14. And in the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. And in the earthquake 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So this is interesting. Let's look here. First of all, there's a great earthquake in Jerusalem. A great earthquake strikes Jerusalem and kills 7,000 people. Now, I want you to stop for a moment. Whenever we talk, before I make with this next point, I want you to think for a moment. Let's think about what we've already studied. Whenever we've talked about great judgments happening, what is the reaction of the world whenever God causes a big earthquake, people die, all of the judgments have happened? How have the world responded thus far when it came to God? Everybody remember? Did they praise God? Or did they repent? What does it say in the passage? They were angry. They cursed God. They blasphemed God. They refused to repent. Now, I want you to notice something, because Jerusalem here, obviously the inhabitants are who? Jewish. And when this earthquake happens, 7,000 people die. What is their response? Look, look at the passage. Look at verse... 13 and 14. Look specifically verse 13. They gave glory to God. Do you see the exact opposite here? This is what I'm trying to tell you. This is what I think is happening. What you're going to see here is, I think, the great turning back to God. Turning to Jesus, the Messiah. See, it's already beginning, folks. You know, uh, Ron Pierce tells me this. In fact, you can pray for him. He's in Israel right now. Um, in northern Israel... With, you know, we've got the threat of Hezbollah, Syria over here, you've got Hamas down here, and you've got Iran with a big nuke. The Jews are very interested right now in who the Messiah is. And so they're talking to Messianic congregations. Now, what are Messianic Jews? Messianic Jews are Jews who have accepted Jesus. There are Messianic congregations in Israel. There are a few of them, but they are there. And so the other Jews, the secular Jews, and the other Jews are beginning to ask questions of, who is this Jesus? Who is this Messiah? You understand? Who is this Messiah? Why? Because there is an interest. And I think when this happens, we're going to see a great turning. Because all of a sudden, because this happens, who do they give glory to? God. That's the opposite reaction of the rest of the world when this kind of stuff happens. Isn't that amazing? They give glory to God. And then the pronouncement is made. The angel pronounces. 
the writer proclaims, the two woes have passed, but there is still one more. So two woes have passed. Remember the first woe was what? The million, couple million man army that is released. But then also now we see this, uh, the two witnesses and the judgment on Israel. So now let's look at verse 15 through 19. This is where we're going to end up today. The sounding of the seventh trumpet. Look with me at verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the One who is and the One who was and the who is to come, because You have taken Your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and Your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged. For You shall reward Your servants, the prophets and the saints, those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of the covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and the earthquake and great hail. Okay, let's take a look here. First of all, the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. The seventh angel sounds his trumpet. So we see the seventh trumpet being sounded now. Here's what the, the angels proclaim dominion of Christ over the earth. The angels proclaim the dominion of Christ over the earth. And then in verse 16 through 18, you're going to see the worship of God. God is worship. It should be E.D., worshipped and ascribed sovereignty as the second coming is foreshadowed. And then finally, verse 19, John sees the ark which symbolizes God's communion with the redeemed. God sees the ark which symbolizes God's communion with with the redeemed. Okay, next week, folks, we're going to see, we're going to look at Lesson 20, where he talks about the woman and the dragon and the child. All right, let's, let's close our time of prayer and get ready for the morning worship service.